Weeping Cedars is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to help us keep telling our story, please share our show with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes and Spotify. And if you'd like some extra content, head over to patreon.com slash weepingcedars, where you can sign up for monthly updates, the Weeping Cedars newsletter, and the sticker of the month. You'll also be able to hear the season one and a half show, Lapping Cedars, with local real estate agent Eli Ford. And if you're already a patron, or have already shared our show with your friends, thank you so much for your support. On the sunny Monday morning of May 9th, 1892, 15-year-old Mabel Folstuck was walking from her home on Dockers Boulevard to a house on Bierce Avenue. Mabel was very likely enjoying the beautiful weather, perhaps swinging a stick as she was wont to do, and maybe whistling a tune from the dance she had attended with her family two nights earlier. Mabel was a typical girl for the late 19th century. She was earning a little pocket money working as a part-time nanny for a well-to-do family who owned a house that looked out across Hill Street and over Gleason Pond. Mabel liked to walk down Main Street and turn right onto Johansson's Mile Road to avoid walking past Gleason Cabin because she, like many of the town's residents, considered it bad luck. And bad luck was not something Mabel Folstuck was looking for on a gloriously sunny morning with a song in her heart and a good stick for whacking fence posts. But bad luck was indeed waiting for Mabel as she walked up to the open front door of 14 Bierce Avenue. As she stepped inside, she felt the breeze blowing past her through the three-story home. Somewhere upstairs, she heard the little girl that she cared for crying, but Mabel felt strange and she didn't immediately rush to see what the child needed. The household, which belonged to Maurice and Glenda Firebaum, was usually a bustle in the morning. But this Monday, it was silent except for the breeze and the crying baby. Mabel walked on tiptoe toward the back of the house where the kitchen lay, terrified at what she might find. Seeing the screen door wide open, Mabel thought for a second that perhaps the firebombs were in the backyard. But her moment of hope was dashed when she stepped into the small kitchen to see the little girl's parents slumped on the floor next to their kitchen table, their eyes dull with the glaze of death. The newspaper reported that the neighbors for three blocks heard Mabel's screams on that beautiful May morning in 1892. This is Weeping Cedars, a weekly documentary about the history of a small town in northern Hamilton County, New York. We are telling its story week by week from the archives of the Weeping Cedars Historical Society. Our show is presented by Kay Millport and me, Lee Mitchell. The baby in that story, the one who was crying upstairs, was named Rachel Firebaum. She was taken in by a family who lived close by, the Ben Rubens. From all accounts, she grew up happy and without the shadow of her parents' mysterious deaths hanging over her. At the age of 25, she married Robert Sharon, 
and they had a daughter named Brenda in 1917. Brenda would grow up to marry a young man named Bruce Abington. In 1940, Brenda and Bruce would have their own daughter whom they called Francine. And while Francine passed away in 2015, her husband Lawrence is still alive and living in Maine. Lawrence and Francine had a son named Ronald, who married a young woman named Tracy in 1990. And Ron, who had the unfortunate experience of having the same name as a famous actor and director, was the father of a woman who went missing last year, named Riley. So, put in much shorter form, one of Riley Howard's great-great-grandmothers on her father's side was found crying in a crib on a May morning in 1892, while her parents lay dead in their kitchen. And as far as we know, Riley was unaware of this dreadful bit of her family history. What happened to Maurice and Glenda Firebaum is a mystery. Their cause of death was ruled gas poisoning, though no source of gas was ever found and the front and back doors were wide open, as were several windows. So gas poisoning doesn't seem likely. But as far as other mundane answers go, we are at as much of a loss as the police of the time. There were no wounds on the firebombs, no signs of a break-in, nothing appeared to be stolen from the wealthy home, and little Rachel was unharmed in her crib. Their obituary says little about their lives except that they grew up in Weeping Cedars, that they were successful in their business, and that they were well-liked. A very brief article the next week mentions the ruling that their deaths were due to gas poisoning. And that's all. That's all except for one odd fact that we mentioned in Season 1. The names Maurice and Glenda Firebaum are included in the list at the back of the Book of the Witch and next to their names are the initials B.M. Last year, I would have told you that I thought that was some kind of coping mechanism for the town. I was, as far as it goes, certain that our synthesis and mythology and psychology worked well enough to explain what was happening in Weeping Cedars. But now, hmm, now it would be an understatement to say that I'm not certain about our lovely little construction. According to our framework from the end of last year's series, we might interpret the firebombs' names in the book of the witch like this. A husband and wife, parents to an infant girl, die mysteriously in their home. There's no explanation, no real sign of death, and the answer given by officials doesn't seem sufficient to explain the horrific nature of the tragedy. So, since the people of the town can't process this terrible event using the rational tools that they have, they use the myth of the witch to make sense of senseless tragedy. They enter the names of the firebombs in the book, and the nightmare that Mabel Fullstock walked in on is neatly packaged in supernatural dread. And while the witch is scarier than a gas leak, she also offers the people of the town the ability to understand. If undetectable random gas leaks kill happy couples, what does that say about the safety of our homes? How do we prevent that? How can we feel safe? But a witch who punishes people for doing something wrong? Well, you can take steps to avoid her. That's how, I think, we might have interpreted this. But, well, after what we've seen over the last eight months, I don't think I can subscribe to that view any longer. No one on our team can. That's partly why Kenzie's gone and partly why Claire is gone though their reasons are about as opposite as can be. It's hard to know what any of us really think. 
at one moment were processing all these stories as a kind of religion that explains why people did what they did. At another, we have felt ourselves standing at the threshold of the dreadful teetering between beliefs. Put another way, we now believe that the myths of weeping cedars are not merely a coping mechanism. They are a worldview, like a religion, that orders and explains and gives meaning. But don't ask us where we stand on the truth of this religion, because most of the time we're not sure ourselves. While we were digging into Riley's family history, we found a lot of strange stories, the strangest being that of the fire bombs. But we also found mundane, charming and humorous anecdotes that intersect with characters and events from all over Weeping Cedar's past. In that way, we found that Riley's family history was another way of telling Weeping Cedar's story, both the good and the bad. And for the rest of our time this week, we want to focus on the story that we started last episode. Because, based on what we've found, we believe that that story may explain why Riley was taken. This is, perhaps, our way of making sense of senseless tragedy. But, well, one must do what one can. So, to make our case, we want to present three bits of evidence. The first is a string of experiences had by the women in Riley's family. Now, we can't prove that all of them were wearing the ring at that time, but we know that each owned it. And, as you'll hear later, we think the circumstantial evidence is pretty strong. The second is a piece of correspondence from the Green Hill Society that, we believe, concerns the ring and its importance. And the third is a bit of law that we mentioned before. And we admit that this last one is something of a leap, but when paired with the first and second pieces of evidence, we find it compelling. We are starting with a letter from a woman named Hilda Abington, who, with her husband Thomas, knew the firebombs well. The letter is a description of the events of the night of May 8, 1892, the evening that the firebombs died. The letter is to Hilda's sister, Ruth, who lived in Shale Pond with her husband, Carl. Ruth, I'm writing to you because I know of no one else who might hear me out without thinking that I'm hysterical. I have no desire to end up spending my days in Dr. Kunicki's home, surrounded by the screams of the deranged. And yet I can no more contain the thoughts that rampage through my mind than I can fly to the moon on one of Mr. Verne's space guns, though I may wish to do both. And so I must tell you, sister, of the dream that possessed me on the night of Moe and Glenn's deaths for it is so like the one that Thomas's mother described to us on the night of your wedding that it has driven me to distraction. And I was not taken with drink in the way that she was that night, but sober as a judge. I must have fallen asleep just past nine, for I remember Thomas going down to prepare a letter and the clock in the hall had just rung the hour. Then I knew nothing until I was standing on the bank of the river looking out into the forest. It was the north bank, though I can't say how I knew. I could see no buildings, and I had the strong impression that there were no buildings to see. There was only me and the river and the vast primordial forest. Nor were there Indians about, for, as you know, in their wisdom, they avoided the river and our land. 
but as I stood there alone, I smelled and then heard a small fire. I turned and saw a little cave. A moment later, I was within and there was a man sitting there, but only by a small flame flickering upon the floor. His face was dark and obscured by shadow, and when he moved, there was the sound of metal. Come no closer, he bid me. I asked him to tell me why, for I could sense that he was in anguish, and I thought perhaps that I might give him succor. But he sent me away with harsh words, words I dare say that not even sailors of the roughest sort would speak in the presence of the most uncultured woman. And so I fled. And as I emerged from that little cave, I felt a strong presence, there in the forest. Hungering figures. They lusted, but not for me. For the man in the cave. They longed for him. But I felt that they would consume me to get to him. I backed away then, my feet entering the river. One moved toward me at that moment, and I could feel his desire swelling like the river's rising. And, my goodness, this part is hard to explain. But in a flash, I was gone from that place, and standing near the old cabin by the pond. And I saw an old woman walking down the street, westward. She turned, and once more I could feel the desire flowing out of her whole being toward me. But she walked away bound by some duty. Sister, I woke then in a prodigious perspiration. My hand clenched so tightly that I could barely open it for several minutes afterward. It hurt me terribly and weighed as if it were made of lead. You see why I cannot tell Thomas of any of this, nor a doctor. They would bind me and set some kind of contraption on me for being a woman of unsavory thoughts, desires, and unbridled imaginations. Judge for yourself, Ruth. Think on these things and tell me what your wisdom suggests, for my mind is in turmoil. With gracious love, Hilda. The next length in this particular strand comes 40 years later from Hilda's daughter-in-law, a woman named Miriam Abington. Miriam married Thomas and Hilda's son Morgan, and they had a son named Bruce. On Bruce's 27th birthday, he was greeted with the news that the Japanese Empire had bombed Pearl Harbour. Seven months later, he was a member of the storied 82nd Airborne Division, 505th PIR, that jumped into France in the early hours of D-Day. When the veterans returned in 1945, Weeping Cedars was proud to claim a member of the 82nd as their favourite son when they threw him and eight other men a parade that went down Main Street and circled town five times before one of the cars simply ran out of gas. A short journal entry from Miriam, Bruce's mother, is recorded on June 6, 1944. She writes, I woke in desperation last night, my heart racing. The dream came again, though this time he was standing in a cave, begging me to go away from him. My hand hurt so badly, and then I was falling, falling through the darkness and the world exploding around me. I have never heard such noise nor felt so much fear. Little pricks of light flashed past me, and the wind buffeted me on all sides. Death below and in every direction. Something exploded above me, something below. I just kept thinking, why will I not fall faster? 
and my hand hurts so badly. I can still feel it. The final length of this strand of evidence is actually a short recording on a cassette tape. It was recorded in 1994, when Riley was just over a year old. Riley's parents were making her a tape for when she got older. Apparently there had been a film with Michael Keaton the year before where he did something similar because his character was dying. Fortunately, Riley's parents were not dying at the time, but as you'll hear, her mother wasn't feeling 100% that day. Uh, let's see. What do you even... Oh, um, music is in a weird place. Uh, Ace of Bass is big, but so is Celine Dion, I guess. She will have no idea who they are. Not to me, Trace. Sorry, right. Right here? Okay. Sorry, baby, you won't know who they are. I can't imagine Celine Dion is going to last much longer. Yeah, probably. Um, let's see. Big hair's on its way out, thank God. Oh, babe, you should get your hair done like Winona Ryder and re- Hey, are you okay? Yeah, sorry, I'm fine. I just... Actually, you know what? Can we do this later? Sorry, baby, but your mom had a terrible night's sleep. Again? Like, the cave thing again? Yeah, but I really don't want to talk about it. And... Shit. My hand is killing me. I just need some Tylenol. Can you turn that off, hon? Yeah, don't you think you should go to the doctor for that? We'll explain how we got this tape in a few minutes. But to connect all this together, Ron Howard, again, Riley's father, not the Happy Days and Arrested Development guy, was the son of Lawrence and Francine. On his mother's side, if you go back a couple of generations, you have Rachel, the crying baby in the crib, and her husband, Robert. But you also have his grandfather, Bruce Abington, who was the grandson of Thomas and Hilda Abington. But, and here's the twist in this long Genesis-like genealogy. Thomas Abington, Ron's great-grandfather, was not the son of another Abington. You don't find any Abingtons in Weeping Cedars before 1876, when Thomas changed his last name. Before that, his family name was Abramson, and his father was a prominent member of the Jewish community in Weeping Cedars. It's not clear why Thomas changed his last name, though the growing xenophobia and rhetoric from the members of the community circle might have had something to do with it. However, this decision also obscured the relationship between Riley's family and another family in Weeping Cedar's history, the Boobers, because David Abramson married Sarah Boober in 1854, which made Moshe and Judith Boober his father and mother-in-law. Remember, just a few minutes ago when we read the letter by Hilda Abington, and she mentioned a dream that Thomas's mother had described to them? No, that's okay, this is a pretty dense episode, but go back a few and listen. I'll wait. Okay, so Thomas's mother is Sarah Buber, the daughter of Judith Buber, who wore the ring right up until she died in 1887. And Thomas and Hilda got married in 1891, four years after the ring would have passed to Sarah. And it is down through Sarah, Thomas, Morgan, Bruce, Francine and Ron that a silver ring with Hebrew letters engraved in it came to sit first on Tracy's finger in 1994 
and then on Riley's finger. Riley got the ring just before starting at the Historical Society. She had been called home, offered a job, and got the ring as a gift from her mother. Then, soon after she handed the ring to Riley, Tracy Howard got sick. About a half a year after Riley disappeared, Tracy Howard passed away in Cartwright Hospital, just before the residents of that facility were evacuated. A little over a month later, Ron, Riley's father, killed himself. He took his own life on Christmas morning, leaving three wrapped presents under the tree. One for his wife, one for his daughter, and one for us. Well, specifically for me. It had a collection of family pictures, letters, and some tapes in it. And while all of what he left is fascinating and heartbreaking, only the tape we played seems to connect to our research. And even that is tenuous. But honestly, I don't think he gave us these things to be useful. I think that if he believed we could get Riley back, he would have stuck around. And before anyone emails in, no. I don't know what was in the gifts he gave his wife and daughter. That's none of our business. We said we had three main strands of evidence about the ring. These experiences, a piece of correspondence, and a bit of law. The correspondence comes from the Green Hill Society in 1952. It is addressed simply to Mr Maples. It reads, As you know, acquiring the third key is of utmost importance. We trust your expertise in this matter. If you think that Uxom is your best starting place, then we will make arrangements for you. As to the other keys, the ring is safe with Brenda and will likely go to Francine soon. The other key is on display and neither side wants to deal with it at present. Tell us whatever else you may need. Robert Dreyer. Francine was, as we mentioned earlier, Riley's grandmother and Brenda was her great-grandmother. It's okay if you don't remember. I have a cheat sheet in front of me and I can barely keep it straight. The last piece of evidence is the intersection of the story of the chained man and the passage we read earlier this season from Weeping Cedars, 1742 to the present by Ulysses Cartwright. In the book Local Legends and Lore of Northern Hamilton County by Mary Fryer, the story about the chained man says that he tells the children to bring him certain items but not a staff, a ring, and a bell. In Cartwright's book, he says that the GHS and the community circle are both hunting for a key in Asia or Africa or the Middle East. He claims that such theories became popular when the third element was brought from the Holy Land and remade by a man named Haver in the last century. This, a small silver ring with arcane lettering, is in the possession of the society despite the Circle's efforts to obtain it. Putting all this together, it is our belief that the ring that Riley wore was the same item that Cartwright and Bob Dreyer identified as a key. We think, though we can't be sure, that they believe that the keys had something to do with the legend of the chained man, as if it were actually real, not just a fairy tale. And, once again, we have to say, a year ago, that would have all seemed like nonsense, but we don't think that anymore. And next week, we're going to let you in on why that is. 
We're going to revisit perhaps the scariest experience we've had on this journey and answer a question that's been plaguing this team since the first season. We're going to do that by exploring an idea that was born at the end of the 19th century and grew into a movement that came to be known as A Home Away. That's in one week on Weeping Cedars. This episode stars Laurel Johnson as Lee Mitchell, Narenda Pennington as Kay Milport, Sandy Guillen as Tracy Howard, and Lawrence Mason as Ron Howard. It features The Mighty Condeset by David Swantek, Soulagement by Demoiselle Donner, Ending 2 by Mon Plaisir, and Said No Certeses by Hinterheim. Weeping Cedars is written and edited by Joshua Wise. If you enjoy Weeping Cedars and want to discuss your latest theories and get links to the scripts for seasons 1 and 2, please join our Discord. You can find that link as well as links to all of our social media at allportsopen.com slash weepingcedars.